Hello, my name is Sylvia Frost, and I'm here today with Mary Nova. <laughs> and as you know from episode zero, I'm a USA Today best-selling paranormal romance author, and, and I'm a developmental editor. And we talk in one sentence at the same time. <laughs> Think. Um, and today we're going to be interviewing the amazing urban fantasy author Annie Belay. Uh, and she's USA Today best-selling, Hugo Award nominated, but most importantly for our podcast, she sells a ton of books. Right. Um, just now, I just picked one out at random, uh, the, her latest book, Magic to the Bone, which is the seventh installment in the 20-sided Sorceress series, is around 400 in the Kindle store. And that's yeah. uh, not in Kindle Unlimited. So she is... AKA, she's killing it. And our mission is to figure out how people kill it. How is she killing it? How is she killing it? Um, so we had some small technical difficulties <laughs> recording this interview, which is why we're doing this little um, brief opener instead of just doing that while we were with Annie. And we just want to extend a huge thank you to Annie for her patience. Um, but I think that's... Is there anything else? I think we're good. Let's, let's go to Annie. That's let's go to the part. interview. Okay, cool. I, in reading your books, The 20-Sided Sorceress, as you know, I'm a fan of yours, and I think you really are really skillful at all your world building, all the way down to your prose and your sentence craft, and um, I just wonder kind of what has your journey been like to kind of developing your writing craft, because I know when I've heard you talk on K-Boards about your books, it's you've said it's something that's important to you, I think. Again, correct me if I'm wrong here. <laughs> no, I think I think craft is the most important thing. Because the way I look at books is that if you don't have the foundation of a good book, and I know good is subjective after a certain baseline, right? Right. You know, it's like, is this readable? Right, right, right. But if, if you don't have a good book, it's like building a house with no foundation. Yeah. To me. No, so. I totally agree. I mean, and this is kind of what our goal of our podcast is, is I feel like there's a bit of a mis. Uh, a misconception in the indie community that good book has fallen a little bit lower on the list than I think it should be. And I think it's because people aren't looking at books in a strategic way of what good is. And they've kind of got an idea of good that might be outdated, if that makes any sense. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do is trying to figure out what, what about what makes, what makes the top sellers good and you're a top seller and you're good. So that's, that's why we're talking to you. <laughs> well, and I think that oftentimes on places like Kboards and you know in, in books about indie publishing, people don't talk about craft that much because craft is a very one it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to learn and it takes a while. Like there's nothing you can't substitute anything for the hours of practice that you need to do. Right. And also when you're talking about indie publishing, you're talking about publishing, which is a business. So a lot of the talk is going to focus around business anyway. Right. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me. It's like I wouldn't go on a gardening forum and then expect them to be talking about, you know, the, the super understood basic. They're not going to explain to you what a hoe is. Probably. <laughs> yeah, that's, you not... know, I, I mean, actually that's a terrible analogy, but no, like, no, I like it. Like, but like, you know, or a, a group for like people starting restaurants, they're probably not actually going to be talking about cooking that much. They're going to be talking about the yeah. restaurant business. And so, you know, I think that there are places to learn about the cooking, right. <laughs> which is the writing part. And then there are places to learn about how to actually sell your food to people who want to eat it. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I thought like when you, when Sylvia wrote me about the podcast, I was like, this is really cool because that is one of the things, what you guys are doing, is actually one of the things that I did to learn how to write better. I called it my library project. <laughs> I would go to the library. Well, I mean, I was a, a broke writer. You know? <laughs> so I would go to the library, and I looked at the fiction shelves, and I didn't care what genre. And I would look for authors who had more than 10 books, who had had something come out within the last like five or six years, so they're current. And I was like, okay, they have enough readers because with traditional authors you don't get to 10 books and people aren't buying your books because your publisher will just drop you right so i was like okay here are people you know and i looked at best sellers i looked at people who were not best sellers but were consistent sellers and so i i made a point to read at least three books by each of those authors that i could find there on the library shelf and to look even if i didn't like the book 
to look at why people might have liked the book. Like, why does this person have a career? Why is this working? That's like yeah. exactly what we're doing. <laughs> hey, we're on the right word track. Word. We like three books. Like it's like the formula. <laughs> can can you can you remember one like particular takeaway from doing that as opposed to just absorbing books in general that kind of stayed with you? Um, let's see. So I think the big things that I learned from that was even when you think something is plot driven, it's actually character driven. Mm. So, so I read a lot of thrillers. I mean, I love thrillers and people often think of like Patterson thrillers as being very plot driven. But what I was finding from reading these books is that it, it's still like centered on the characters. And even if the characters time on the, you know, on the screen was very brief, like it was a victim who then got horribly killed. You know, there was, it, it was, in, in in pretty much all of these books, there was an emotional through line. Mm. And that was tied into the characters and caring about what was going to happen to them, which was the plot. You know, the things that are happening to someone. And the things that they are doing, you know, and, and that is, that, you know, so that, that was like a really big, I was like, oh man, I need to make sure that you <laughs> Coming up with what happened, I need to make sure that it stems from who and to try and reach that emotional tie to the reader and to think about like, you know, it it made me as I was writing think about like, not just what is going to be happening here, but what do I want someone reading this to be feeling about what is happening? Yeah, I was actually picking out a a very small moment, I I would say, from the second 20-sided sorceress book where these two big burly men um, are like protecting a couple of children who have had a really rough time of it and it happens that they're shifters and so I just really there was almost this matter of fact kind of like of course they bonded of course the kids think this guy you know totally trust this guy already so of course when he says so you want to ride a tiger they're all over it and it's just such a, it was such a compelling and sweet moment. And I kind of loved that there wasn't a lot of like the, you know, the heroine Jade looking at this and going, oh, and I'm just melting because these big burly men are bonding with these kids. And it just happens. And it was just there. I really loved that. Yeah. I think for me, I I noticed that a lot too. I think like, especially in your, your inciting incident for the first book, isn't just, uh, okay, Full disclosure, anyone who hasn't read Annie's books, stop. <laughs> Turn off the podcast. Spoiler alert. Go buy the books because uh I you know, it's not it's these are really good books and you don't want them to be spoiled to you. Okay, now that you've all read the books. Now and we're back. And we're back. Um for me, I noticed that in like your inciting incident for your very first book was them finding this girl's mother as uh, one of the friends of the heroine's mother as a stuffed fox. And that was like, it wasn't they just found a body. It was they found a body of someone they knew in like a very inventive way. And then, and I found myself going like, oh my God, I really hope she's not dead. And I was like, <laughs> how is she going to be like, she's definitely dead. And you had to be totally convinced she was dead. And then a couple of chapters later, it's like, no, she's not dead. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, I was yeah. like, oh, Annie, like, thank you. You've like my heartstrings. And, you know, and I think like, I can see that because you have this really marrying of this emotional core in there. And I think it works really effectively. So you clearly learned something. Well, do, <laughs> yeah. do you know why you thought she was dead? Why? Tell me. Because I killed two people before her in the book. Look, there you go. So there, that's that's why, right? Yeah. Because you knew that it was possible. Right. Yeah. If I hadn't killed anybody up to that point, you probably wouldn't have thought it was possible. Right. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point. I, I stole that from Joss Whedon. Oh, nice. Oh, I finally learned oh, while so writing funny. that book to forgive him for the Serenity movie. <laughs> <laughs> It was an exercise in forgiveness. It was because like I would never at the end of the Serenity movie. And now I'm going to, if you haven't watched it, (laughs) actually don't bother watching it. Just go watch Firefly again. But (laughs) I forgive him that much. At at the end, you know, Mel gets stabbed. Right. And there is a moment where you believe maybe he could die. And the reason you believe that is because he's already killed Shepard Book off screen. Right. As kind of a warm up. 
and then he just killed Wash right. in the most yeah. senseless Wash. thing ever oh. for which ever actually forgive him. <laughs> but but you believe like shit anyone can die. Right. Yeah, actually it's funny that you bring Whedon up because in talk in with with me and Sylvia talking about your books, I kept referencing this one Whedon-y moment that has um, really, or a moment from him that's really stayed with me as kind of, I recognize it as the same sort of thing when I find it elsewhere, which is um, in one of the seasons of Angel, um, an early season, Angel this vampire has like evil lawyers and a couple of vampires. And I remember reading this review of the episode and the person is like, and I thought, well, obviously he should just lock them all in together, but they'll never do that. And then he does. And there's just that, and I had kind of felt that with that episode. And for me, the I relate that to the discovery of the, like the stuffed fox body but especially to the i i I had a very similar reaction to um the idea of eating hearts and the idea that (laughs) (laughs) look at that demonic laugh i love it (laughs) yeah yeah so so tell us please of of that and the the cackle that accompanies it yeah i want to know more (laughs) well so that was when i was writing the series i was like i really want to do this thing i'm like can can people handle the fact that the main character is basically a cannibal like is that gonna work like is that gonna am I gonna get to the end of this book and everybody's gonna be like oh my god I can't believe she just did that yeah so I was like well that's a risk I'll take it you know what kind of reaction have you gotten for that oh everybody loves it no one I have gotten (laughs) nobody not one single person I mean maybe they're out there and they just threw the book against the wall and like (laughs) never bothered to write me but they always seem to write so (laughs) So no, no one has even. I don't know what this says about humanity, <laughs> but no one has batted an eye over the fact that the main character like eats hearts. I mean, well, it's not like she does it lightly, but right, that still has point. happened multiple times. Yeah, right. Well, and I think that I think there is a kind of modern craving in stories for moments like that, for moments where, because you had set it up, like the idea that hearts could get eaten has been discussed already by that point. And it still never occurred to me that, you know, Jane was going to go for it. And I think there's just something that is so just kind of incredibly satisfying about a very difficult to pull off because it's not about the gore. You know, it's not, it's, it's not just that it's not just about the, shock but it's also to me partly about well it's you know that's that feeling of well you know if they were really gonna push it they could and then they do and I love that well I think it's effective because you have this emotional core of the characters right I think like what Annie said to bring it back you know she's doing it for a really compelling reason she's not just eating hearts for fun and um and she's doing it because and it affects her right we like in the second book you can see how it affects her in terms of like she has this knowledge that she doesn't even want to like use right away because she doesn't want to you know become this evil heart eating monster you know so i think that's why in my opinion i don't know i'm yeah so uh, here's here's another like sort of tangent question but um i felt like there was a really strong thread of logic and i connect that back to what Sylvia was just talking about there, you know, she's not just eating hearts to shock you. There's a reason why. And she really spends a couple of books, you know, thinking about that and about a lot of things about her type of magic and being a sorceress. And she really, it seemed to me that Jade was really trying to kind of push her thoughts to like, this is my reasoning. This is what I'm going to go with. And Annie, I was really curious how you think about that approach in your books. Cause I felt like that was logic was such a strong thread. I mean, I think that there's, like, certain basic elements to telling a good story, right? And you want to be able to tell it in a way that other people can follow it. <laughs> so. That's good. I, mean, I, I don't know. Like, some stuff just, I won't say it just happens, but I think once you've been telling story, like, writing stories for a while, you, you just sort of, you start to see structure. Every, I mean, it's like six cents, right? I see him everywhere. <laughs> you know, I, I I constantly spoiler TV shows and stuff for myself because good narrative structure has a structure. Right, yeah. Right. And right. and you can tell what is going to happen if someone is writing it correctly because they have foreshadowed it. Right. Yeah. 
I think I think that's what you do actually. You can it's sort of it's this balancing act between making it sort of obvious and then giving all of these obstacles as to why it can't be. You know, it's like on the one hand it's obvious she'd eat the heart, but like there are all these obstacles of why she wouldn't, you know. And so it yeah. it has that perfect resonance of being both somewhat surprising but also feeling inevitable. That's really hard to pull off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what you want is you want people, you don't necessarily want everyone to guess. I mean, obviously people who are very savvy about narrative are going to be like, Oh, I totally, obviously, like, yeah. you see everything coming. Right. You know, right, right. It's fine. Yeah. You're not writing for the expert. I see cars coming. It's evolved to my everyday life. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't see those. No, <laughs> but the, you want, you want people to get to the end and be like, Whoa, Right. And be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. You know, I hear yeah. like, earlier the series harder, like Jade being a dragon. Right. That is foreshadowed the entire series. Is but it? There are plenty of people who are like, holy shit, that's a thing. <laughs> okay, wait. Okay, so now I'm curious. I, I have to, I, I may lose some savvy credit because I didn't, um, I didn't see that foreshadowed. I didn't catch it in the, how was it foreshadowed in the first couple? Uh like where, what did I miss? Now I'm, I'm so, really so it's 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 not. I didn't. I laid on the heavy foreshadowing at the end of book three, obviously. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But there's like little things that, and and some of them are so subtle that you have to read, like like they are not things you will pick up on purpose mm. in the first couple books. Like some of her abilities are not things that other sorcerers have. Oh. Right. But the benefit of writing from first person is I can restrict knowledge to what she knows so So there's all these things that she doesn't know that other sorcerers don't know so the foreshadowing in the first couple books is only visible through the lens of having read later books and being like oh nice that's the thing and that's what i wanted because you want to leave some things with a little bit of a surprise but what you want is that that feeling of satisfaction from a reader looking back and going oh of course you know, that's a really strong quality that came across to me um, through the series, and especially um, for Jade, three books, one through three, that it really impressed me how far we were in the books, and I was still learning completely new things about Jade. And then once I kind of had the Jade story, then I, f- I really felt like almost every secondary character, all of her friends, and then even like the sheriff and the veterinarian, that any one of them also was like the foundation of a whole personal history that we might learn a lot about or might not. And I really, there was just sort of, it gave me kind of a tapestry feeling that there was just like this one careful stitch and then another stitch later on. It was, I, I really loved the way that you kind of spread out the information. Yeah. So how did you, how did you do that? Do you have like a world series Bible or did you, how much did you plan out at the beginning or how do you get that richness? Well, I think, I, I don't have, I have a notebook. <laughs> so, and it is the most, I, I do not recommend this method for writers, by the way. I recommend being a lot more organized. Um, I, I handwrite everything into a notebook. Wow. Okay. I, I told my husband I took it on a trip with us because I was working on the trip. And uh, and I was like, all right, if like the boat starts to sink or something, grab this notebook. <laughs> my life is in this notebook. Like, yeah. This is the most valuable thing we own <laughs> right here. Like the entire series is in this notebook. Oh, wow. And he's like, well, it's in your head. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> like, grab that notebook. Leave me. <laughs> Finish it without me. <laughs> yeah. Like. So, so all the outlines, all the series notes, all the character notes, like everything is in that notebook in a very haphazard fashion. Mm-hmm. And so for side characters, what I like to do is kind of sketch them out because every character and for the antagonists. In fact, in book six, I got stuck for a little while in the beginning because I was having a lot of trouble figuring out like what order things needed to happen in. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I needed to know, even though it was never going to be on the page, I needed to know what Samir was actually doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I had a rough idea of what he was doing, but I needed to know, like, what he was doing, doing. Yeah. So I actually have an outline of book six as though it was written from Samir's point of view. Oh, wow. Well, I've actually so I sat done down that and too. outlined so him and what he was doing, and that made it so that I knew how Harper could thwart him, what he was thinking about Harper. Like, so he, I basically, you know, fake wrote the book from his point of view yeah so that i would know what was going on because 
you know, every every character has to have. It's one of the things that I loved about the Dragon Age um, oh, game. Oh, I love those games. Is that you? You want your side characters to be their own people and not just in service to the to the main character. And right. so, what I loved about like Dragon Age Two was that no matter what you do, Anders is still going to blow up the damn church. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. no matter what choices you make. He has his own story, his own goals, his own life. Like, he is going to do his thing. And there's <laughs> yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And, and I think that that gives that game more richness, too, because it's like you're making all these decisions, and you're changing little things. But in the end, these people are not you. You are not in control of everything. Yeah. And so I try – when I'm coming up with side characters and stuff, I try to remember that they are their own people. They are the heroes of their own story. You know, they have their own family histories and backgrounds and opinions and everything like that. And to try and – and you can't – I mean, they're not the protagonists. So you can't work it all in there. But I think just knowing, like, 80% more than the reader ever sees is really good for writing characters and world building and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And by, by the end of the series, there's also just uh, – I was struck by the number of, like, interesting teams that, frankly, I'd be happy to – I felt like I'd, I'd be glad to read another series about um, this team. I think like um, Aurelio's um, wolves who have been wolves for like over a hundred years, I think. And um, the the team in groups in book six that um, Alex's sister and his, and her group, I was really curious whether they were like another set of protagonists because they read as sort of just, just as compelling to me. Well, there's going to be a book called Softpaw. Perfect. Oh. Side novel with an adventure with him. And I'm thinking of splitting off um, and writing a series about Alex's sister. Yeah. Yes. So I think yeah. her, her team, but it would be a lot more like burn notice with shifters than. Nice. Because Kira is not Jade even remotely and has no compunctions about killing. <laughs> right, so. right. 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 It would be a different thing. So I don't know how readers would respond to that. But right. It might be fun to try at least. Yeah, right. and where 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 do you feel you are with uh, Jade's story? Like, is because she she has her big boss fight, but then is there? Do, do you anticipate that there's uh, still plenty more, or was that meant to be like a seven book concluded arc? Oh, it's not over. Okay, there's I left so many threads hanging. Yeah, like like what's going on with the Council of Nine? Yeah, what's <laughs> you know? what's up with that? I do. So so the next the next book out will actually be a side novel with Harper. Okay. And she's she's going to be going to gaming conventions so that I get to set up a book at a bunch of gaming conventions <laughs> and um, and kind of recovering from what happened. And she'll, so she'll have her own story. And then when she comes back, spoilers, I guess, um, there's book eight is called Dungeon Crawl. Nice. And it's going to completely stand alone. And then book nine is called uh, River of No Return. I'm going to be doing a cover reveal for these like next week. So cool. it's not really Who's and uh, but so both the Raven, she's. I mean, most of the urban fantasy covers you see are either Lou Harper or Raven. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, so I'm gonna write some standalone novels continuing the series, but there won't be a big overarching plot developing until later. And then I have an idea for. It'll it'll probably be like a three book arc kind of dealing with the seals and the council of nine and what's actually going on with like magic returning to the world. So I kind of have a very loose outline of those books. I just don't know where they're at yet. They could yeah. be nine. They could be 10, 11 and 12. Yeah. Or I could, after finishing book nine, be like, Oh, here's another side story I want to do. Or, so I'm, I'm leaving it pretty open from here and I'm just going to kind of write the ones I feel like writing. Yeah. Both uh, Sylvia and I had the exact same reaction, which was, it's like she, but basically it's like she knows me. It's like she's talking to me. And I think the whole, um, I, I had read older books where like the gamers go to a fantasy world and that's all, you know, well and good. But the fact that um, like gamer culture and just sort of every aspect of nerd culture is so much the culture of the books was something that felt, I just, I really enjoyed it. I had, I felt like I hadn't seen it all brought together like that before you know what it reminds me of actually uh it, it's a little bit like ready player one although i honestly i like this better than ready player one but ready player one for those i'm gonna frame that i'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna take that sound bite <laughs> yeah yeah do it. do it i like this better than ready player one yeah i mean this has got like real 
characters with real emotional heart, whereas Ready Player One, I feel like, was a little had more references and the emotional arcs I felt. I hope like if like what if the author of Ready Player One is like listening sorry, to this Ernest right Klein. Now? Yeah, yeah, sorry, Ernest Klein. Wipe your tears with your money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I think I think why it works for me is that I think it, we actually talked earlier about um. T.S. Joyce. I don't know if you know T.S. Joyce, Annie. Uh, she's a big author in Shifter Paranormal Romance, which is the world that I live in. Um, and she kind of has her world built around like Shifter as a metaphor for like blue collar um, jobs, which is like a lot of Shifters is like that, but she does it really effectively. And so I think why your books work that way is it feels like people's kind of culture and interior experience translated into into magic and so I think you you've got this built-in audience like I was telling Mary that for example I actually got my degree in opera and um I've had like an inkling to write a Phantom of the Opera retelling for like ages as you can imagine but it's like all my insider knowledge of the opera world it's like it's not like there's a whole bunch of opera aficionados just going like you know what I want to read like a romance novel with wolves set in the Met you know <laughs> it's like so it's like even if I actually had all the you know was able to get all that richness the audience just might not be there which kind of segues into a question I have is like I how much do you how do you think about would you say you write to market and how do you think about tailoring your your books to what readers want if if you do at all well, yeah, I mean, I totally did with this. Yeah. So, and that was part of the point of this is that basically I thought about, and there, there are a few aspects. So one, I thought about, like, I, I made a list. I know I've said this before in many places, but <laughs> it's, it's what I did. I made a list of all the things that I love to read about. Right. And then I tried to cram every single thing on that list into one series. Nice. And I got everything except the spaceships. <laughs> you can figure out how to do that. So, next, but next series. But one of one of the ways in which I I guess compromised and making air quotes <laughs> was that I, I before this I I'd written some stuff in first person. I actually have a epic fantasy novella series in first person, and but I I like to write third person. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it gives me more more freedom to jump around and, and be in whosoever head has the most stakes in that scene and mm-hmm. you know it's it's the first person seemed limiting to me and I, I've learned that I mean it is in some ways but I think I grew as a writer by having to write so many books in first person but I was reading all of these you know I'm a big urban fantasy fan and I was rereading urban fantasy stuff and looking at stuff that was just coming out that was really popular and I'm like well it's all first person yeah <laughs> so one of the compromises I made I was like well I'm writing in first person like this is the thing it's gonna happen yeah, that was like the big compromise, I guess. But I don't feel it really. When when people say like, "Oh, right to market," I I don't know what their mental image is. Is that they're like gonna be like chained to a desk <laughs> in a box, you know, <laughs> that that they will be joylessly pounding on the keys with bloody stumps. You know, it's like, it's like no. All you gotta do is say, "Hey." I'm going to write an urban fantasy and I, I love spaceships, but I'm pretty sure that like my urban fantasy audience won't want to read about spaceships. So I'm just going to save that. Right. Cause if you really, if, if spaceships are the thing you most love, don't write an urban fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, like, like go, go save it for something. Like you don't have to do all the things all the time. You really don't. I mean, this is what happened to me, right? So I wrote my first serial and it like did okay. It like, uh, I was settled around like twenty or thirty thousand in the Kindle store for like I don't know a yearish, but they were basically vampires in disguise. Like my werewolf has like can control people with his voice, and he like quotes Shakespeare. Like he was just a vampire because I really was like, oh, shifters are popular. I'll write shifters, but you know I just w- really wanted to write vampires. And so then for my new series, I actually wrote like he's a you know a normal he's a lumber one of my characters is, is a lumberjack shifter and you know he like gets in with his hands and he's bulky and he's all the things that people like my readers want shifters to be and it's sold a lot a lot better um so i'm totally with you on that one (laughs) like don't 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 call a spaceship like a don't call a don't call a spaceship a a magic a magic wand you know (laughs) like yeah yeah you can can always put the spaceships out in the void 
Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but again, like the, the further you wander away, the right. more you're going to be confusing your, your audience. Like yeah. you need to right. think about, because if you just want to, like I think it is totally valid to just write the books you want to write for you. Yeah. But I think you also in that case have to tailor your expectations. Right. You know, if you want a million people to read your book, you have to write a book a million people want to read. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take that quote and frame it. <laughs> you know, it's it's when when you're publishing, your book is no longer yours. Your book, and I know that people cringe when people say this, you know, they think of the person chained to the desk. Your book is a product. <laughs> yeah. It is something that readers are going to consume. Right. And and your your book is now a part of their brain and their conversations. And so you can't just write for you. Yeah, I you totally have agree. to keep in mind who you who you want to read this. Right. And if you're the only one you want to read it, then you cannot. I mean, you can. People do it all the time. But you should not then go, why? Nobody's reading my book. Right. It's like, right. well, you're the one who read your book and you wrote it for you. So you've succeeded. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, if, if nobody else is reading it, maybe you should think about the fact that you wrote that book for you and everyone else is not you. Right, right. Awesome. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. But but at the same time, loop, looping around a couple topics, um, we've talked before a bit about like, you know, if you're going to be doing something, respect it, you know, respect the setting, respect the people you're writing about. And I feel like this series, it really hit me again on sort of that nerd culture level. I loved reading like kind of in a way powerful nerd culture. And particularly I was really smashed by um Jade had a group of friends in the 80s and her friends and they all died. They all sacrificed herself themselves for her. And it turns out that one of like the suit, like the great memento of her life is that one of those friends was a Marvel Bronze Age comic artist. And he drew the group of them in kind of and it's nicely described, like how they all look very 80s in the Marvel Bronze Age. And I think that part of so I love that. I loved how. I could, as a as a fellow geek, I could really feel like how precious and important that would be. But another thing that I love that I have no idea if it was intentional, but I'm I'm guessing it may have been was I already knew thanks to the comic book Marvels that the Bronze Age is when comics turned dark and people started dying, and so I loved that it was the Bronze Age, and I just kind of loved that there was all of that to enjoy, but. Even if there wasn't, the fact that it's a picture of her, you know, beloved dead friends, that already carries the image. I really, I just loved having the way that the culture was kind of layered very thickly in a way. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah. part, of the, part of the reason that I did that with the series is that I really, I've read a bunch of books that have gamers in them or make nerd references, things like that. But a lot of them were they disappointed me as a hardcore nerd, I guess. Right. I, I mean, I'm not really that hardcore. I'm a filthy casual, but you know, as, as, as someone who like is into all this stuff and sort of lives and breathes this stuff, it's, I, I felt like they were dumbed down a little and over explained, which I totally get that you need to do to reach a really wide audience because while we have won the culture war, there's plenty of people who would probably read my books and be like, I have no idea what these things are. Like, right. like what is a baneling? You know, I, I had so, to look up the Kamehameha move. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't know Pokemon. This is like me and Mary have this like very interesting cultural divide where like um, she knows all. I'm like, really I, old. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, like I didn't get that about the Marvel thing, but then like you know, you didn't get the Pokemon super effective, and I think you don't have to get everything. You know what no. I mean? No. No, and that's, yeah, I just, I appreciate, again, that was another thing, it's just handled lightly, like, in, instead of taking all the time to explain every one of these things, and kind of wreck it for everybody that got it in the first place, just let some of them go, that's okay. <laughs> well, and I, I had a friend read the first book, um, who is not a gamer or a nerd at all, and I'm like, does the story still make sense? Did you still give a <laughs> shit about the characters? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I, I was lost. When they were referencing <laughs> things, except for like labyrinth, but oh my god, labyrinth! <laughs> you said they... magic word. <laughs> but you know, there, there. She didn't need the gaming references. But what I wanted to do was write something that was my, that was from my experience of nerd culture. 
culture. I mean, obviously it's not going to be everybody's, but I took a lot of elements of myself and my friends and like how we talk and our references. Like people often, well, not often, but every now and again, I get reviews complaining about the amount of swearing. And I'm like, have you met gamers? <laughs> like watch, watch an hour of any Twitch stream ever. <laughs> Good luck. You know, <laughs> there will be way more F words in there than I use. You know, I yeah. only, I, I try to keep it down to about one per thousand words. Mm-hmm. Which I realize is a lot of swearing, but I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, not not compared to, you know, I'm I'm curbing myself right now pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> but and I'm sure I've I've swore not even noticed. So I, I think we're good. Um, I guess that kind of you you said that your friend read it. I guess that brings me to like, what is your process like for um drafting and editing? And do you use an editor? If so, who? Like, you know, has that process evolved? So. So the first book, um, three people read it and gave me feedback before it was published. And then for all the subsequent books, it's just been my main first reader. I just have the one. Wow. That's, I have so much admiration for that. <laughs> and then, and then um, I use a copy editor, and sometimes I double up. Mm-hmm. So I'll use like a copy editor and a proofreader because mm-hmm. I find that that's really the best way. And stuff still slips through. Yeah, but and and I just I keep notes when people send me typos. I just keep in notes, and then when I get more than a few, you know, more than like four or five, then I I send it to the because I pay for formatting. I don't do my own. Right. Then I send I send the notes to the formatter and they fix it. But yeah. I, I try to save them up so I'm not sending him like something, you know, every month kind of right. thing. So, but I nothing nothing is perfect. I can't remember the last time I read a a book that had not a single typo or missing word in it. So yeah, like, and I don't I don't worry about it that much as long as it's not crazy. Yeah, my, my first three books had quite a few errors because my copy editor was not great, <laughs> and I I'd gone with him because he was recommendedly cheap, and uh, and I was dead broke when I was doing the first two books. I mean, mm-hmm. but the covers and the editing for the first three books on a almost backstop credit card, like. Oh. I was like, well, it was like my last seven hundred dollars. I was like, all right, we're we're gonna do this. Wow. So, but I I feel it's very important to to have at least because I'm also dyslexic. So wow. there's there's all kinds of things. I mean, word can catch some stuff. You know, I I leave my track changes on and everything and and um, auto correct and stuff. So it'll it'll underline some things that I've just gotten completely sideways. Yeah. But it's you know, I can't necessarily see when I when I reverse a letter or you know leave leave something out or have have a sentence worded oddly because in my brain it totally made sense that kind of thing and so that's what I am adamant about using at least one copy editor and then you know potentially a proofreader afterward. So do you? I mean, how many passes of editing do you do yourself before you send it off to your first reader? And do you first reader and you go back and forth? Or is it usually just a one and one and done then to copy editor? Yeah, it's usually a one and done for me when I'm writing. So I edit as I go. Okay. So I can't tell you how many passes I do. It's probably quite a few. Mm. But what I'm doing is I what I like to do is I'll, I'll write for a bit and then I'll take a break and then I will read over what I've just written and I will make little changes and tweaks and fix things. And then every time I start the day, I'll read over whatever I wrote the session before and I'll do it again, make little tweaks and changes. And then sometimes my brain is like, Oh, you need this here. Yeah. And then I'll go all the way back and I'll start from that point. And then I will read forward from that point to make sure it all flows and make little tweaks and changes. And sometimes I will write like 10,000 words and then I will realize that like, Hey, this scene would be better written this way. And I'll just throw it out. Okay. Yeah. So I've done and that. start over. Cause there's, I, I don't really like Frankensteining drafts very mm. much, which is another reason I edit as I go. I like everything to flow like it was all written together at the same time. Mm. So if if something needs a bigger change than just like a word or a sentence or something, I will actually just chuck the entire thing wow. and start it again, like redraft it wow. so that it all – because I sometimes – and I got this a lot when um, when I was reading manuscripts for critique from, for other people. I could – often tell <laughs> I'd be like hi you added this section yeah or you know you changed the gender of this character <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you know, and sometimes it's obvious because they've missed a few changes, but other times it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this was not the way you wrote it the first time, mm. you know, and I can kind of see, and that's why I call them the Frankenstein drafts. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? I think and sometimes it's more work to then try and smooth that over and make it look, mm-hmm. you know, like it was grown that way yeah. than it would have been to just chuck that section and do it again entirely without being Frankenstein. So yeah. for me, that's like, that's what I do. I, I would just prefer to write new prose mm. rather than try and fix stuff that I don't think is working. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, two questions on that. Um, so about how long does it take you to, to finish a book? And has that sped up over time? Like to get it's, all the way through production? Yeah, it it depends on, because I do a lot of pre-writing kind of in my head yeah. and, and like notes on paper and outline and stuff like that. So, I mean, I've written a book in as little as, I think my shortest one was in, I wrote a 90,000 word novel actually in 10 days. Whoa. And then another, but I mean, that's just the writing time. It's yeah. not the, I, I think that book took me like two years in my head before I <laughs> yeah, yeah. write it, you know? And then I've had other ones that took me three months. I don't think I've ever taken more than like three months of actual like working most of the time to write a book. And that book was only like 40,000 words or 45,000 words. Yeah. So it, like length doesn't have a lot to do with it. It has to do with like, am I trying something new? Am I trying to figure out how it's going? Do I have a clear view of how the book works? Right. You know, so, so actual like drafting time once I know where I'm going is generally only a few weeks. But yeah. I have to get to that point where I know what's happening and what's going on. And in these last couple of years, I've been really sick and that has been cutting in. That's been stretching out. So actual writing time won't be stretched out, but the time between books has gotten stretched out because of days I don't have the brain power to do it or I'll write anyway. And then I will go back a couple of days later and look at what I wrote and be like, I can't live with this. And I will never release a book. Like, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of being indie is I can't be a bit of a prima donna with my writing. It's like, <laughs> I I do not want to put a book out there and talk to people about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, and but I know that, like, there's, there's things that I care about that I bet readers would never even notice if it was. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they would even be able to see much difference between, you know, yeah. the, the first draft of this this chapter and the complete redraft of the chapter like they probably came out pretty similar but there's little things that I care about I know but good enough like isn't good enough for me yeah so I'm anal about it even though I probably don't need to be but yeah I still want to be I can so relate I mean so Mary's my developmental editor right I I guess we didn't really explain that very well but Mary's my developmental editor and um so I she has seen firsthand me work and, and throw, not throw large portions out, but rewrite large portions after I'd already rewritten it at least two or three times. And I, and I sort of knew, I was like, if I push this out, my readers probably wouldn't notice, but you can just see, like, they would never be able to say specifically, like, what's changed, but I think that they, I think readers can tell. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is about, is that they can tell, they just can't, you're not going to see it in a review that's like, oh man, I really wish there had been emotional, more emotional layering in the, the fifth scene. I felt disconnected from the characters, you know? They're not like your critique group, but they'll be like, I kind of got, you know, they might even say I got bored at chapter two. It might be a five star. I loved it. But, you know, it'd just be something, some little thing where another person might not pick up your next book or you might lose a reader and you'd never know how, but it was that little thing, you know? I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Is there's there? I've definitely read books where I'm like, I liked that, but there's something missing and you can't yeah. pinpoint it. Right. It's like, I liked that, but I'm not sure I'd read another one. Right. And like, that's never the response. You <laughs> right. Or like, like, or like, oh yeah, I started that book and I put it down and I, I, I just haven't gone back to it, but I don't remember why. <laughs> right. You know, like right. I would rather have someone hate a book and throw it across the room than feel, eh, yeah. I, I guess I just didn't feel like finishing it. Like right. that is the death knell of a career right there. Yeah, I think. yeah. Speaking, you know, so have you ever published traditionally or are you fully self-pub? Um, short stories. Okay. I have 
I actually lost count, but I know it's over 30 short stories and like magazines and anthologies. That's actually how I started out was writing short stories. I've written over a hundred of them. Wow. I bet so that... that was another place to learn craft. Yeah, way. for sure. But yeah. Short stories are like short story writing and novel writing don't actually translate to each other hmm. very well. They, I mean, they do in some ways, but I think one of the reasons that my books are shorter is because so short story writing, I think is really hard. Because you have to have every sentence doing triple duty. It has to forward the plot, illuminate character, and show something about the world or setting. Right. You know, I mean, and it, well, it has to do at yeah. least two of those, but three is better. Like, yeah. the best short stories do all three things every single line. Yeah. And so, one of the things people are like, wow, that was a quick read, but I felt like I got so much. Right. I think because I came from short story writing, where I haven't learned how to, like, let a book breathe. Yeah. Because to me, that's boring. Like, yeah. everybody... I was rereading a novel and looking at the structure of it. I'm like, man, people spend so much time talking to each other. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> or like, like brushing their like, teeth. You're like, why do I need to see that? Let's, let's punch things. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. not like it was boring. It's just like, this is not how I write. Like, yeah. like, so actually in later books, I tried to make people talk to each other more. <laughs> I need to learn to do this. Like have conversations and not just fight. Right. But I really like fight scenes. So... But I think it's it's one of those things is like short story can teach you a lot about craft, but novel writing is its own beast. And I'm I'm definitely still learning a lot about writing longer works. And so and, and another reason this 20 sided sorcerer's books are short is like I was like subplots, meh. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> who cares about subplots? Let's go to the action. Well, so I, I think one of the things I'm going to try and do in other, probably not this series, I'm just going to keep going with Jade as she is, because I love her. Mm-hmm. But other books, I'm I'm crafting them from the beginning. I'm like, okay, I need subplots. Like, I want to try writing something more. And I, they might fail and never see the light of day, but. Well, I kind of feel like when I read your long series, it's almost like, you like kind of what Mary was saying, this tapestry thing. You, you grab the things that might have been subplots and, like, almost make them, like, like for example, the whole Jade's family. That could have been a subplot in a larger novel, mm-hmm. almost, but instead you just gave it its own sort of, like, I don't want to say novella plus, but, like, category urban fantasy. Can that be a thing? Like, length, <laughs> length, not, you know what I mean? And so it's, it. it's longer than the bridges of Madison County. Yeah. So I mean, they I'm, called that a novel. I'm not one to talk. I mean, like, I wrote, like, you know, I've got, like, an 84-page, like, mini-bite, you know, out right now. So, like, you know, it's like, I, but I, I really feel you. I feel like I, I strongly relate to your feeling of, like, trying to trim out fat, uh, you know. But I sometimes I wonder, like, with some of these books, I see there's something about just living with a character in moments that are kind of not not necessarily big high stakes or exciting that gives kind of more resonance to those higher stake moments. And this is, I actually didn't find that a huge problem with your books. I, even though they were quick, I didn't feel like, Oh, I don't care, you know, because I think you layered on the emotion so effectively, you know? Well, and, and also that I'm I'm sorry. Well, and I tried to do at least one or two, I call them breather moments per book. Yeah. Where, where something is, is, you know, so there'll be a chapter where it's just Jade and Alec connecting. Right, right. You know, or or, or Jade and her or... friends. Yeah, or Jade and her friends discussing stuff after stuff has happened, you know, before they go off to fight the big battle or whatever. Right. And those are like breather moments where nobody's in peril. Because I think readers need those. You can't just have nonstop action no, all the time. No, you can't. You know, yeah. I want I want those characters to sit down and, and eat something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, every now and again, just a little. Yeah, like, just, just eat go a to burger. the bathroom. Yeah, it's like, I, you know, and so I think that it, longer books just have more side plot and they, they probably also just have a few more breather moments because, you know, there's a, there's a certain pacing and feel and structure and rhythm to things. Right. And so a longer book is naturally going to need more breather moments. Right. Well, and I think some of the um, some of the characters seem to be developing so that they may gradually bring more and more of that over time. I'm thinking of um, so e- easy who um, like within the first book we learn okay he's a twin he's Native American he's gay but that's like and, and he's a game and and then he it's not that it, it's not exactly that he ever like has taken off as like all of his own t- like 
time taking the spotlight. But, you know, eventually we learn about these in a very interesting relationship, um, which we haven't seen a lot of, but it's just sort of, I just like, again, that the tapestry is the, the, the picture I have that it just sort of adds a richness to everything. I feel like I'd love to know more about those two, but I don't have to, like they're not, it's not their book. And so, but they're, I like that they're there. I like that Rose isn't just, um, uh, Harper's mom, the Fox isn't just like a victim in the first book, but she really seems to kind of be a presence throughout the books that, um, and, and just, and kind of grows in some of the things that she goes through. Yeah. So, um, let's see anything. What else have I, Oh, I know what I was going to (laughs) ask. I remember. Um, yeah, well, I, one of the things that was really strong for me and I think to be honest, I think you do almost better than there are very other few indies that I can think of that have the, as strong of prose as you do. And even just little things like you don't have repeated words. Like, and I know that's kind of a copy editor thing, but like, and, and you know, your, uh, your facility with language. So, I mean, I know you talked a little bit about reading for kind of picking up books off the shelf to kind of have your, have your kind of, uh, to grow your facility with kind of plot and structure. But I, I wonder kind of how do you approach like sentence by sentence and, uh, kind of imagery and, uh, and uh, yeah, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I think a lot of that is, is kind of subliminal now. Uh-huh. But like, again, like learning from short stories. And actually, I started out in some ways with an advantage on the pro side because before I wrote stories, I was a poet. Okay, mm. I see that. And I wrote hundreds and hundreds of poems. And I, so I learned to play with language and, and metaphor and simile and all the, the structures of that. And one of the things when I started writing short stories and submitting them is I was getting back all of these rejections that were like, the, the writing is beautiful, but the story doesn't work. Mm. And finally, after about like a dozen of these, I was like, huh, maybe I need to learn (laughs) to like plot and, and have character. Yeah. I, I kind of like that. I think every writer starting out probably does at least one thing well, generally. Mm. Probably probably any writer who's going to make it. <laughs> anyway, ha, no, no, everyone's going to hate me. But, you know, you, you generally have a thing. So there'll be people who have a really good feel for action, but they need to work on characterization. Mm. Or right. people who can write really well, but don't have any like me had have no grasp for how to write a story that pulls people through it Mm. you know so like and i and i went to a a convention and i got a story critiqued there by some people who were pros and selling and you know trad authors and and they were all like you might sell this on the language alone but and it was that but and i'm like Uh. man i fix that but you know so for me, I think the language part of it was, I don't want to say like easy. Like I still think about things like I'll reword things and be like, no, that's not getting it across the way I want. But it's not something that it's the part that I was naturally good at. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I just love language. I kind of understand how language works. I've studied a lot of languages, including the roots of our language, Anglo-Saxon. Oh, cool. So it's. For for me the the language part I think I I came in with a natural advantage on that just from all those years of beating my head against poetry mm-hmm. and so I'm not sure how you would even learn that except for just write a lot and try to make sure that because because the point of writing is not necessarily or, or of of writing this kind of fiction anyway is is not necessarily you don't want the language to get in the way right for sure but yours doesn't. And, well, and you don't want – well, that's what you want. You want it transparency. You know, you want the you, you want the prose to service the story. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. are books and, and kinds of novels like um, House of Leaves. That one, that one is all about – you know, it's, it's a literary novel. It's very weird. You have to read it in paper because it has all – you have to turn the, the book sideways sometimes to read things. And, <laughs> and that one is a complete, like – form novel and I say novel very loosely (laughs) but for for genre fiction for this kind of fiction you know where I'm writing to entertain I am writing 
to bring people into this world with this character to do this thing. I think that you, you need to make sure that your, your story is getting across in a way that is evoking the emotion and the imagery that you intend mm. to the reader. And everything inside of that could be a distraction. Mm. And so there are writers who write amazing freaking prose right. that I am not sure will ever take off in the way – you know, everybody bitches about um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh my god! Yeah, the prose is not good. Yeah, but you know what? That emotional through line is like a freaking steel cable. Yeah, yeah. In that, and so if you like that kind of book and you like that kind of story, you are gonna attach your line to that cable and get dragged along forever. Yeah, I, and if you don't, you're not gonna, and you're just gonna sit there and stare at the scaffolding and be like, "Why is everyone reading this book?" Right. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think. Yes, that emotional core is, I think, what people can see, and they don't, people don't think of that as necessarily great writing, but I really strongly think it almost is, you know, the ability to get that emotional core and convey that and pull people along, regardless of any other problem, is almost like an Olympic feat, and we actually, we talked about Bella Forrest's books, I don't know if you know the Shade of Vampire series. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like how could in- anyone avoid Bella Forrest? <laughs> it's at the top of all the lists. I know, right? So we, she owns the front page of my genre. Forever. I know. Yeah, well, like, like everyone's like, genre. oh, you can hit top 20 in, in urban fantasy. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> not, not today. Yeah. Not unless I'm like number one in the whole store. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm glad to be in fairy tales where, uh, I mean, uh, full disclosure, I mean, I've never personally she hasn't met... gotten there yet. Yeah, she hasn't reached there yet. <laughs> Please just leave us, leave us fairy tales, fella. All met in good fun, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just leave us one genre, cat. <laughs> please, please. But um, but one thing that we noticed with with we were talking with her stuff, and we got kind of on the topic of Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight and all these and all these things where people see it and they're like, oh, that because it doesn't resonate with them, they it's hard for people to see how it might resonate with someone else, you know. And I think the ability to be able to look as a writer and see how emotional cores can resonate with different kinds of people is almost a crucial skill if you want to be able to sell. Right. Well, and also stepping in from the developmental editor side, I mean, I have had kind of a long personal journey, mostly reading and beta reading fanfic. And for me, that was always part of the lesson was to, to more and more look at each story and be like, well, I hate, you know, these three things about it, but boy, this one is really good. And kind of break them, you know, they're short, you can do that and break them down that way. Um, and I think that there's a lot of like enhancing what you've got and rec- like much like you said with the action person that doesn't do characters so well. And there's like recognizing what's going to be enough for your area because in action you are going to thrive if you have good characters, but they don't have to be the most original. They don't, you know, like there's, there's some wiggle room there. Um, and I, I don't know. I've lost my thread, but, uh, but that's what I was thinking. Well, yeah. and I think that, that being really good at a few key things can cover over a lot of weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I think that oftentimes, at least in critique groups and stuff, you tend to focus on shoring up weaknesses and yeah. not playing up strengths. And part of that is human nature. You know, I could say three good things about something of yours that you've written and one bad thing. And you're going to spend the next 48 hours of your life obsessing over the one bad thing I said, even though I said three times as many good things. Yeah. And then and then when you go to write the next thing, you're going to be thinking about not doing that bad thing instead of thinking about how do I do right. good things better. Right. Well, I think that's why, like, for me, doing this whole, like, looking at other people's and just focusing on the good things. Like, when we talk, I mean, obviously, if we've got you here, we're not going to be like, you know, I hated that stuff. Well, but it just really freaked me out. Not, but, um, not bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, uh, but I think it's actually really helpful to almost to just focus on strengths for other people it, because I, I found with my own writing, like, well, the more I try to like pick at stuff that doesn't work, it just gets me in like a non-inspirational frame of mind. It like doesn't, it doesn't allow me to kind of, I think enhancing is almost always more powerful than trying to just like remove, if that makes any sense. Oh, I totally agree. I think focusing on what's working and also like when you're learning, actually I did think of a way that I was, I work on like sentence level craft is if I'm reading a book 
and I see someone do something like like show anger in a certain way or or write, you know, like on a, on a sentence level, do something that I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Right. I will actually like write it down huh. because like, oh, they did that. And I will just steal. I mean, not like steal the literal words, but like yeah. they wrote anger this way and described it this way. Like, how do I do something similar? How do I bring that mm-hmm. into my prose? You know, right. it's like, oh, I've never thought of doing it like that or having, you know, this action or yeah, the thing I notice for myself a lot is just how visual writing has really become. There's just really not much interior monologue. And if there is, it's almost all couched within action. Um, and so the one thing I really work on is just try and just have just like a heavy visual component. Because I think that is almost a through line I've seen of all the books that really sell is just the ability to really get readers to picture what's happening. Yeah, and and... I think also like a lot of us, I know some non-visual writers and it's, it's interesting to watch their process because it's so different from mine, but I am very visual heavy. Like mm-hmm. I don't start writing until the book is basically running like a movie in my head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So See, for me, I mean, that's, that's an easy thing. It's like, I need to be able to picture it or I can't put it on the page. Yeah. For me, it's really funny. I mean, that's something that I have to work for, which is ironic because I'm a cover design artist. Do you think it would just be like natural for me but I'm actually first and foremost an auditory thinker I'm actually I I tell anyone who asks I think I'm probably a way better singer than I am a writer or a cover designer but for whatever reason I've decided to go against God's will and nature's will and screw the universe (laughs) and um Anyway, but so I always like I have all these descriptions of people's voices that I always have to cut off because it's always like that's always my first instinct is to think of how someone's voice sounds. But it's like that's not most people are not like that. Most people like, you know, like what color is his hair? I mean, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So it's interesting, been interesting for me. Well, and someone uh, someone I work with uh, as like developmental um, is super, super visual um, and it's interesting to me because, yeah, I am not. I'm the opposite. And so she's, for, for her, like everything about a scene, she can, you know, she's visualizing like it was a still from a movie the first time she thinks of it. And that's all very, you know, that's all very interesting. It means that the description of any given setting is fantastically rich. At least in her case, what, what, it, what we've found is that it's interesting to kind of, okay, you've got your movie still. You know, why is the chair ladder back? Like, why did you, why did you make the, you know, why is the hairbrush silver? Um, because she's described it all, but in being able to just sort of like cover it, um, it often is showing these really rich kind of enticing details, but it's then kind of interesting to sort of pick through as an editor and be like, okay, why did you do this? Cause maybe we can add more of that feeling. Well, I just want to say a huge thank you to you, Annie, not just for being here with us. I mean, personally, I just had a really great time chatting with you. And I think it's cool to see a lot of my own ideas reflected in you, but in a more kind of condensed and eloquent way. And um, (laughs) and I I really look forward to your books. Uh, Do you want to give us your website or what what, when's the next book coming out for for people who are readers, which might might be me <laughs> it's me when, when, um what? probably this fall for the 20 sided i'm gonna i'm gonna write some things that are not 20 sided okay. i've been writing 20 sided for two years yeah you're ready for without a break. a break so what what's so, the what's your next release date for any related where can i get my next annie belay fix prob- and probably when? the end of april actually okay cool. oh wow and i'm gonna then, finally write another griffin pike novella i have it partially done so nice i finish it that's awesome and then your do you want to give give our our many eager listeners (laughs) (laughs) your your website so that they can find you hi mom (laughs) not even my mom will listen to this no i mean you'll see um okay my mom doesn't read my books (laughs) she used to she read she read some of them but she doesn't like urban fantasy so she read i think she read the first three and she was like I wish you would write that 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 nice fairy tale stuff some more. And I'm like, Mom, it didn't sell. So, <laughs> yeah, no, my parents definitely haven't read my books for all the reasons you can think of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, my my website is annieboy.com. It's really easy. Okay, great. Well, I think that's all. Uh, do you have okay. any questions for us or anything you need from us before we sayonara? 
No, just thanks. I think your guys' project is awesome, by the way. Thanks. I think that that talking about what works in books is something that isn't done enough in a in a more like open global sense. Like I mean obviously people sometimes talk about it between themselves. But I think that this kind of thing of focusing on what works and why something is because things sell because of what works, not because of what doesn't work. Yes. Right. And yes. so I think that the talking about that and bringing the fact that without readers, you don't have a career. You can't divorce readers and money. Like yeah. it doesn't happen. So when people are like, well, I want readers. I don't care about the money. I'm like, you realize those things are hand in hand, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can, or, or you can only care about the money, but you're going to need readers because you right. don't get the money without the readers. Like you, you audience is how you, you make it. And right. without that, you've got nothing. Right. And, and I, so I think yeah. that, that bringing the positive into the conversation and and talking about why people might like the things that they like and how to steal it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. You're more and more That's what we're up to. For, our, for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do this all day. No, but I think that it is like, you know, really, it's an important conversation that more people should be having. So I'm, I'm really excited that you guys are doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you could be on our inaugural interview podcast. You're like the perfect guest. Aw. Tolerant, patient, kind. Yeah, yes, all of those things. All right. <laughs> thank I, you so much. All right. We're, I think we're going to sign off. All, all right. right. Thank you. All right. Have Bye. Bye. <laughs>